Jesus' followers follow Jesus with other Jesus followers. Did you get that? Let me say it again. Jesus' followers follow Jesus with other Jesus followers. When Jesus was on the earth, he called 12 men to follow him together, not as individuals. When God called a nation his own, when he called the nation of Israel to be his own, he called them to follow him together, not as isolated individuals. God's people have always been a group, not isolated individuals. God's people, and they will always be a group, not as isolated individuals. We will exist forever in the kingdom of God together. Yes, of course, Jesus loves you in particular, died for you, wants to be in a relationship with you, but he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to be alone in the world. He doesn't want you to be isolated, stranded, alone. It makes sense that Jesus would do this, that Jesus would call together his people and then put them in groups. You see, Jesus is the smartest person who's ever lived. He's God. He knew that his followers would understand each other in ways that no one else could, so he put them together. Jesus knew that his followers would need each other in profound ways, so he brought them together. Jesus understood that his followers would not be able to effectively spread his word to all the nations as individual agents, so he brought them together. Yes, Jesus loves you. Jesus can save you from your sins. When he saves us, out of mercy, he puts us in groups. He doesn't leave you alone. He doesn't mean to leave you alone. He intends to put you in a group. These groups are lifelines for Jesus' followers. They're incubators meant to keep us alive and healthy as we journey through the dark ravines of this world. They're an oasis in a parched and dry land. The place where we find water for our thirsty souls. These groups are like charging stations for our spiritual batteries. They're like a storm shelter where we find protection from the winds of the world and the darts of the devil. Without these groups, Jesus' followers wouldn't live very long. We call these groups churches. Churches, a group of Jesus' followers in covenant relationship together, more on that later, is a beautiful thing, a profound thing in God's intention for His people. These groups called churches aren't just for anyone. Let me say that again. These groups aren't for anyone. These groups are exclusive groups. Now, lest you mishear me, of course, other people can come in and visit these groups and peer into the life that this group has together. Anyone can come into this room where our church gathers for worship every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and 
see what we do and why we do it, hear, observe, learn, be encouraged and challenged. Anyone can do that. But there are boundaries around the group itself. At least there should be. I was talking to a couple of members of the church this, this week, and it's amazing how many churches don't have boundaries and the kind of effects that that has on their ministries. The church of Jesus Christ is meant to be an exclusive group. A group. Why? Because what Jesus is doing in the world is too precious to be left unattended or to be opened up to people who don't love Jesus. Jesus cares too much about His work on the earth to leave these groups without boundaries, open to anyone to come in and do what they please. God is fierce in His love for His church as any father is in His love toward His children. Parents, you don't let just anyone come in and hang out with your kids, do you? God puts boundaries around His people because He loves us too much not to. Think of it. If God didn't love us, He would just kind of turn us loose in the world and say, good luck out there. And the forces of evil and the powers of be in this world would have open and unhindered access to those for whom Christ died. But this is not how God has set it up. God has gathered groups from the beginning, put boundaries around these groups because He loves us too much not to. The mechanism that churches use to draw these boundaries is called church membership. Church membership. This is the first time I've ever preached on church membership. I know you've been waiting on this for weeks and months and years. So we're going to do a whole sermon on church membership. Some churches call it ownership or partnership. It doesn't matter what you call it, really. The idea is, under this idea of church membership, the main idea is that churches need to define who they are. Churches need to define who they are. Who is Preston Highlands Baptist Church? Who are we? What are we? Well, Preston Highlands Baptist Church is the members of Preston Highlands Baptist Church. That's who we are. Preston Highlands Baptist Church is not everyone who happens to show up on any particular Sunday. PHBC is not our building, our assets, our programs, our pastors. We are, a church is, its members. You see, a church by definition is a gathering of specific people. The word for church in the New Testament is this Greek word, ekklesia, which literally means called out ones. But the way that the word ekklesia was used in the Greek world was always used to refer to a specific assembly of specific people called to perform a specific task. In other words, ekklesia meant called out ones who were called together for specific reasons. Certain people would be known to be in the ekklesia and certain people would be known to be out of the ekklesia. So an ekklesia in the Roman world was a gathering of the called out and called together 
ones, called out of something and called into something. This is how the word was used. So when Jesus says in Matthew 16 to Peter, on this rock I will build my church, he names his bride, and the word he picks is ecclesia. On this rock I will build my ecclesia. The, the, the church, therefore, is an assembly, a gathering of called out ones. Called out, called together. A Christian is someone who's been called out of darkness, called into light. Out of sin, into holiness. Out of death and into life. Out of Satan and into Christ. Out of judgment, into grace. Out of fear and into peace. Out of the world and into the church. This is who... You are, brothers and sisters. These called out ones are called together in these ecclesias for specific purposes. The the way we recognize who the called out ones are is church membership. Church membership doesn't make us the people of God, but it does show us who the people of God are. Let me say that again. Church membership does not make us the people of God, but it does show us who the people of God are. Many people, even many pastors, even some friends of mine, think that church membership is not important. Why would people think this way? Well, there are several reasons. One reason is consumerism. We approach the church with a self-centered consumer's attitude. We ask, what can you do for me, church? Rather than, I'm here. How can I serve? How can I help? Another reason is prideful independence or individualism. We we don't see any need for others. We think that we can live the Christian life on our own without help or accountability. We forget that Jesus called 12 disciples, brought them together, not just isolated individuals. Another reason why we don't like church membership is because we might have a critical spirit. No church is ever good enough. We can't get past the imperfections of the church, so we just never commit to one. (laughs) As if we are without fault. Another reason is commitment phobia. We're afraid to make binding commitments to anything that will limit our options. But... Perhaps there's even a a deeper reason underneath all these other reasons, a a reason why we don't think joining a church is important. It could be that the deepest reason is that we don't like authority, that we don't like accountability. If I could summarize today's message, here it is. Church membership is about accountability. Let's pray and be dismissed. But we don't like that. Who likes that? We don't like authority. We don't like anyone kind of being able to correct us or to point out something in us that might be off. So we'll just float through churches and around churches and never commit to one. Jonathan Lehman, in his book, The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love, says that behind many of our reasons for not committing to a church is really a distaste for authority. He says, quote, It's not relationships that people are so afraid of. People long for relationships. 
Rather, it's a particular kind of relationship that people despise. The real problem then is not finally individualism, it's anti-authorityism. Loneliness is not the problem. A refusal to live life on anyone else's terms is. End quote. This means that the first step that many people need to take regarding church membership is one of repentance. A change of heart and direction is required. A willingness to to make God and His Christ the supreme ruler over your life. And part of living under the authority of Christ means putting yourself under the authority of His church. A.K.A. church membership. Now you're like, okay, church membership seems like it could be important. John, where is it in the Bible? Where are the verses? Is church, uh, church membership commanded in the Bible? Well, no. The short answer is no. There aren't verses that say, thou shalt join a church. They're not in there. But just because there aren't specific verses on membership doesn't mean there's not ample biblical evidence for this idea. There are so many things the Bible doesn't address directly that we hold to, we believe, that we practice. Last week I talked about sexual abuse. There aren't verses specifically prohibiting sexual abuse, but we know it's wrong because Jesus and Paul and all the other writers of the Bible condemn sexual immorality of any kind. So just because there aren't specific verses doesn't mean it's not a real thing. One scholar says the case for church membership is nowhere argued in the New Testament but everywhere assumed. For example, let me give you some examples. In the book of Acts, in chapter 2 of Acts, Peter, after Peter preaches at Pentecost, it says that the church, quote, added to their number. The church added to their number. So somebody was keeping track of who was in, who was coming in, who was in, and then who was added to that, that number. These ones who were added were the ones who were cut to the heart by Peter's preaching. They asked what they should do. Peter tells them to repent and be baptized. He tells them, by telling them to be baptized, he tells them to identify themselves with Jesus and with Jesus' people through their baptism. Jesus' people, Peter believed, needed to be marked off from everyone else. Peter wanted to make sure that the people in Jerusalem knew who Jesus' people were and who they weren't. So they were added, after they repented, after they were baptized, they were added to the number. They were added to the Jesus movement. There are other passages in the New Testament which imply church membership because they reveal that there were clear boundaries between those who were in and those who were out. Paul tells the church in Corinth to exclude a man who was living in unrepentant sin in 1 Corinthians 5. Would you you please make your way to 1 Corinthians 5? If you're using the Pew Bibles, that's page 897. I want to read a bit of this. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells the church to exclude a man who's living in unrepentant sin. A lot could be said here. Before I even read it, just notice... Who Paul is telling to do this? Who's Paul writing to? Chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. 
and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Skip down to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, a.k.a. Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an adulterer or idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let me first start by saying this notion that, you know, a lot of Christians go around saying, don't judge me, don't judge me, don't judge me. Well, if you're a professing Christian... The church actually is commanded to judge you. Not in some kind of self-righteous, I'm better than you way. That's see Matthew 7. But in a, hey, you are claiming the name of Christ, but you're not living like Christ, so I'm going to tell you that. Because you're giving the family name a bad name. You're, You're weakening the integrity of the gospel and the bride that Christ died for. So this is it's nonsense when people go around saying, don't judge me, don't judge me, don't judge me. Paul explicitly says to the church that we are to judge those who profess or bear the name of brother. Now, the point I'm trying to, main point I'm trying to make here, that was for free, um, is in this passage, Paul is writing to the church He's not writing to the elders. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, hey, this man is doing despicable things. You need to remove him. Church, church, you need to remove him. Purge the evil person from among your midst. They were to exclude a man who was living in unrepentant sin. Now let's flip just a few pages to your right. See what 2 Corinthians 2 says. So flip over to 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 2, 5. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is likely the same man who was living in the sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 5. Notice verse 6. The punishment by the majority that this man received had apparently led him to repentance. But it tells us something else. This punishment by the majority tells us that there were clearly defined boundaries on who was in and who was out in the church at Corinth. Otherwise... How do you know what a majority is? They couldn't have known what a majority was if they didn't have some record, some role of church members. Without a counting of members, a majority would have been impossible to establish. Was it just a majority of people who happened to stumble into the building that day? 
Unlikely. So the point I'm making here is that church discipline is the greatest argument for church membership. And we're going to do a whole sermon on church discipline next week. I know you're excited. We'll talk about the removal of church members who are living in unrepentant sin. Jesus addresses this head on, as does Paul. The point I'm making this week is how can you remove someone from something if they're not in that something? You see the logic? So yes, church membership may not be explicitly commanded in the New Testament, but it's everywhere assumed. The New Testament goes on to use several images to teach us what church membership means, how, how uh, the Lord wants to express the idea of church membership to us. First, the church is described as a body and individuals as members of it. 1 Corinthians 12, 20, there are many members, yet one body. Romans 12, 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So if you're a Christian, you're part of the body of Christ. Think of your body. Do its parts kind of wander around on their own and show up whenever they feel like it? No, your body is a unified whole, is it not? Each member needing all the other members. As Rachel just read for us, that whole chapter is so rich on this idea. The church is called a body, and we are members of it. This Imagery of the body is used to highlight the church's unity and diversity. There's one body, but many members. We're not all supposed to do the same thing or be the same. There's supposed to be diversity. We celebrate diversity, but there's also unity, inherent unity. This image of a body also reveals the necessity of members to care for one another. Think of your own body. If you hurt your hand then you do something about it, right? (laughs) You don't just leave it there. You do something to address the wound. So the church is described as a body, and we as individual members of it. The second image I'll bring out is that of a family. The church is described as a family. There are no verses that explicitly call the church a family, but there are several that refer to the church as a household. Galatians 6.10, Ephesians 2.19, 1 Timothy 3.15, the New Testament uses the word Father to refer to the first person of the Godhead, thus describing our relationship to God in family or familial terms. Paul uses the word brother or sister 139 times, telling us that he viewed the church as a family. Those who know God as Father are said to be adopted into his family. Romans 8, Galatians 4, Ephesians 1. The church is a family, not an event. Or as we read at the beginning of the service, Psalm 84, 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. You're blessed if you're in God's family. So membership in the New Testament is never viewed as a dry, informal process of filling out some paperwork. Belonging to the people of God in the New Testament is described in terms of body and family. There are other terms we could get into. This tells us that church membership is is an indispensable reality. It's a high honor and a great responsibility. It tells us that we 
probably undervalue church membership. Think of it. How could you live without your body? How would your life be without your family? The Bible describes us as a family, describes us as a body. Therefore, church membership seems to be a fair implication, a fair way of revealing those realities. Now, who's called to church membership? Now we've now that we've considered what church members are, let's consider who should join a church. Another way to ask a question is to ask it like this. What are the requirements for church membership? What are the requirements for church membership? Number one, church membership is for Christians. Let's start with the obvious, shall we? Church membership is only for Christians. This is called regenerate church membership. The Southern Baptist Convention put out a resolution on this a few years ago, about 13 years ago. I'll put this in one of your handouts. Got two more handouts this week, praise the Lord. So take those, read them later in your spare time. One of them is the resolution on church, regenerate church membership. The reason this is so important is because a lot of Baptist churches don't do this or don't care to do this. And it's weakening our convention, our churches. Regenerate church membership simply means that churches are for regenerate people. Membership is for regenerate people. John 1, 12 and 13, Jesus says, Excuse me, John says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there has to be a birth that happens for you to be a Christian. Jesus says it more directly in John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you will not go to heaven. We become children of God through what theologians have always called regeneration or being born again. Not physically, obviously, but spiritually. We need something new to happen to our dead spirits. We need to be brought from death to life. Those who've done that are called regenerate. Now, we aren't regenerate just because we say we are. We can be deceived. We can think we have spiritual life because we don't cuss as much as we used to. Or we don't look at porn as much as we used to. Or we kind of go to church sometimes. We, we aren't regenerate just because we say we are. This is where church membership comes in and helps us discern whether we're regenerate. Church membership is how our claim to being born again is tested and publicly affirmed. Thus, church membership is only for those who profess and give evidence of being born again. So, first, church membership is only for Christians, those who've been born again. Secondly, let me just say quickly before we move on to number two, I need to add this caveat. This doesn't mean churches or elders will always get it right. It just doesn't mean that. It means we work hard to ensure that the people coming into the church are indeed born again, that they profess and give evidence that they actually love Jesus. But we won't always get it right. We won't, all, we won't always get it right. There will still be unbelievers within the church membership to some degree, even as we practice church membership with great intentionality. 
That's why you should pray. You should pray for your elders as we interview prospective members. You should pray for us. Do you pray for us that we would be discerning and wise and we'd see the things we need to see as we're talking to people, interviewing people? Please pray for us. We need it. So church membership is for regenerate people. Secondly, church membership is for those who've been baptized by immersion as believers. Those who've been baptized by immersion as believers. There's no command in Scripture about church membership only for those who've been baptized. But two arguments that can be made here. First, throughout church history, baptism has been viewed as the right of entry into the church by both Catholics and Protestants. In other words, we aren't weird in thinking this. The church has always thought this, that you should be baptized before you join the church. This is supported by the events, the order of events in Acts 2.41, where the people are baptized and then added to the church. Peter says, repent, be baptized. They are baptized, then they're added to the church. An unbaptized Christian, this is the second argument, is a foreign idea in the New Testament. See my, my sermon on baptism for more on this. Paul in Romans 6 assumes that a Christian is baptized or has been baptized. So if church members must be Christians and if Christians must be baptized, then it follows that church members must be baptized. So who can be a church member? Regenerate people who've been baptized as believers. And number three, the third thing I'll mention, church membership is those willing to commit to a church covenant. Those willing to commit to a church covenant. You'll find our church covenant on one of those fancy handouts, the PHBC church covenant. I provided it for you. Church members are people willing to accept formal responsibility for one another. And churches, Baptist churches in particular, for hundreds of years, think that this is best done through a covenant. Again, there's no specific biblical command for Christians to enter into a covenant with one another. But since the New Testament is full of commands concerning the relationship of Christians with one another, a church covenant is a helpful way of summarizing and formalizing what that commitment should look like. So our church covenant doesn't cover everything that the New Testament calls us to be and do, but it is a good, helpful summary of what the New Testament calls us to be and do. It formalizes, it crystallizes for us what we're supposed to be about. In other words, I could say, hey, you want to join the church? Great. Just obey the Bible. (laughs) Okay. Yes. Amen. That's true. But more in particular, what we're after is how are Christians, what does the Bible say about how Christians relate to one another? How they're supposed to relate to to one another. We find that a church covenant is really helpful in summarizing what the Bible says about that. Churches who don't require such a commitment from their members, churches who don't have covenants or don't use them actively in their churches, can become full of members who don't show up for worship, who don't give consistently or serve or grow. Church covenants used to be normal for Baptist churches. Interestingly, church covenants used to be blown up on these big posters and and posted up in the back of the room, the main gathering room. We don't really do that anymore. But in our church, we do read the church covenant out loud together every time we have a member meeting. Why? To remind ourselves what we've promised to do. To remind ourselves regularly what we've promised to do and be for one another. As one theologian says, the the covenant 
is a, quote, mutual agreement to walk together as the people of God. So who can join a church? A Christian who's been baptized as a believer and willing, someone who's willing to commit to the church covenant. So that's who's eligible for church membership. But now we need to ask the following question. Why? Why should I even care about all this, John? Why should I care about joining a church? If someone were to pull you aside after the service this morning and say, hey, brother, sister, why should I join this church? What would you say? What would you say? Go talk to John. (laughs) No, but really, what would you say? Why should you join a church? Let me give you four things. Four reasons, at least, there are at least four, there could be more. I actually had to take a bunch out. The sermon was way too long. Let me give you four. Four reasons why Christians should commit themselves to a specific local church. First, churchless Christianity is foreign to the Bible. Churchless Christianity is foreign to the Bible. The Bible knows of no Christian who lives the Christian life apart from submitting to a body of believers. I talked earlier about how church discipline implies church membership. But there are two other ways the Bible assumes church membership. Two other ways uh, the Bible assumes that Christians will be doing life together in a formal sense. There are the one another passages. The one another passages imply membership. In the New Testament, there are 59 one another commands. What am I talking about? Well, you know when Jesus says, love one another? That's a one another command. You have other examples like serve one another, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another, exhort one another, encourage one another, show hospitality to one another. There are 59 of these. 15 of the 59 are love one another, by the way. So underneath the banner of love are all these other one another commands that we're called to carry out. How can we do that? How can we carry out these commands if we don't commit to a local church? Let me ask you this way. How do you know which Christians you're supposed to be serving? How do you know which Christians you're supposed to be praying for? How do you know which Christians you're supposed to be walking in, admonishing, teaching, encouraging relationships? All of them? No, these commands assume that Christians who obey them have made a real commitment to one another. And then these commands govern and guide our life together. So this is one of the other ways that the Bible assumes church membership. The other is the responsibility of leaders given to leaders of the church and the responsibility given to the church for its leaders or to its leaders. These things imply membership. First, the Bible says that pastors are called to, quote, shepherd the flock of God among them, 1 Peter 5, 2. Pastors shepherd the flock of God among you. How would Nick and I know who the flock of God is if we didn't do membership? How would we know who to care for? How would we know who to shepherd if we didn't have this mechanism called membership? And conversely, how would you know who you should follow and submit to? 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
So the church is called to submit to its leaders. How do you know who your leaders are if you're not formally under their authority? How is it possible to obey these commands if you never put yourself under formal spiritual authority by joining a church? Which leaders would you follow? Which pastors are you accountable to? Which elders are you supposed to submit to? The church in your neighborhood? The guy you watch on TV? Your favorite YouTube preacher? Are you accountable to them in any meaningful way? No. So membership then, again, is this mechanism that puts you in formal spiritual authority, under formal spiritual authority. So we should join a church because churchless Christianity is foreign to the Bible. The one and other passages and the call to lead the church and follow the leaders of the church implies church membership. Now the second reason we should join a church is for the assurance of our salvation. For the assurance of our salvation. Please hear me carefully on this point because this is often misunderstood and can be easily misconstrued. You don't join a church to be saved. You don't join a church to be saved. You're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. However, you should join a church to help you make certain that you are saved. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So when we join a church, we're putting our positions, ourselves in position to do what verse 13 says to do, to exhort one another so we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're putting ourselves in a position that will allow brothers and sisters in Christ to hold us accountable, to encourage us when we're doing well, and to admonish us when we need to be admonished, to tell us, hey, brother, hey, sister, there's a discrepancy between your talk and your walk. Membership in a church is that church's public endorsement of your salvation. It's that church's way of affirming that you not only walk the talk the talk, but also walk the walk. So a church doesn't save you, but it does help you know that you are saved. And this goes back to what I said earlier about accountability. No one likes accountability, but everyone needs it. Why? Because we're so easily deceived. So the church comes in and helps us see where we are and keep us on the narrow road that leads to life. So we've seen first, churchless Christianity, foreign to the Bible. Second, the assurance of our salvation. The third third reason why Christians should join a church is because God designed the church to be the primary place where Christians grow. Ephesians 4, 8 through 16 is where this is coming from. I won't read it for the sake of time, but Ephesians 4, 8 through 16 says that God designs the church to be the place where the church grows, builds itself up in love, verse 16 says. How does this work? How does you joining a church help you be more like Jesus? Well, the church is where you're going to be forced to love people you wouldn't normally love. <laughs> Amen? Your friends are great, probably. But when you come into a church, you're forced to love people who aren't like you. 
who are in fact very different from you. This grows us and matures us. The church is where we disciple one another, where we're discipled by one another. The church is where we protect one another from sin and expose one another's blind spots. The church is where we're led by pastors and elders who guide us in truth and equip us for ministry. The church is where we're built up through preaching and teaching. The church is where our faith is strengthened through the corporate worship gathering. Think of it. Are the Christians you know who aren't active members in a local church growing? This is not to be judgmental. I don't want you to go and tell them I said this. You know, come down harder than you might come and say, hey, friend, have you considered joining a church? But think of your friends who don't have active involvement or membership in a local church. Are they growing and bearing fruit? And in our own lives, do you remember the times that were hardest and darkest? It, not always, but perhaps was a time where you were in transition you were perhaps moving from city to city and not in a church, or you were finding a new church, or you had bailed out of church for whatever reason. Those times were dark and lonely and full of trouble in many, in many cases. Why? Because the church is meant to be the incubator that keeps us healthy and growing and alive. The fourth reason why Christians should join a local church is for the spread of the gospel. The mission of the church is clear. Make disciples of all nations, Jesus says in Matthew 28. We can do more of this together than we can on our own. When we pool our resources of time, talent, and money, we can have a much greater effect in spreading the gospel both near and far. So why should you join a church? Or what are the, I should say, what are the reasons you should join a church? Well, because churchless Christianity is foreign to the Bible for the assurance of your salvation, because God designed the church to be the primary place where Christians grow, and for the spread of the gospel. I want to close with an illustration. I want you to think of four people and their attitudes toward the local church. These are imaginary people, by the way. Jesse follows Jesus, but Jesse isn't into, quote-unquote, organized religion. He likes Jesus, but not the church. He feels he worships best by going for a hike on Sunday, or going to the lake, or listening to his favorite podcast. Then there's Leanne. Leanne's a church hopper. She's here for a while, there for a while. She worships somewhere pretty much every Sunday, but she never really lands in a particular church. Then there's Natasha. Natasha finds a great singles group. She's always at the singles group on Saturday night. And she shows up at the church in the morning when she's able to wake up in time. But what she really loves is the singles group. Not so much the gathering of the whole church. And then finally there's Jose. Jose loves the preaching at his church, but he tends to slip out right after the service. He never really talks to anyone. Doesn't go to any length to build relationships. He's never even thought about joining the church. He just comes, listens, and leaves. What do these four people have in common? What do these four people have in common? Well, they all see themselves as Christians, but they all see the church as pretty unrelated to their faith. 
They all, therefore, share a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. They all assume that they can follow Jesus faithfully without formally committing to other Jesus followers. But as I said at the beginning, Jesus' followers must follow Jesus with other Jesus followers. So if you're here and you're not a member of a local church and you're a Christian, you should join a local church as soon as possible. I urge you to find a church that preaches the gospel and join quickly. If you'd like to join our church, come see me or ask Nick or one of our church members about what joining our church entails. You can see expectations of our church members on one of the handouts I provided for you. Now, perhaps you're here and you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you're a member of a church, but you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not a member of church and you're a Christian. Well, I urge you to first put your faith in Christ. One of the great church fathers, Cyprian, said, you can't have God as your father if you don't have the church as your mother. Um, and I think he's actually got it backwards. I think the reverse is more accurate. You can't have the church as your mother if you don't have God as your father. In other words, if you aren't in a right relationship with God, then who cares about your church membership? Do you know Christ? Have you confessed your sin to Him? Believed on His name? The Bible says clearly, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And once we're made right with God, then God calls us into a community of others who've been made right with God through faith in Christ. Maybe this is you. The church is the called out and called together people of God in the world. The way we recognize who the called out ones are through church membership. Church membership doesn't make us the people of God, but it does show us who the people of God are in this generation. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would purify our church. I pray that you would make us more and more like Jesus. Forgive us if we haven't taken church membership seriously or, or maybe we've worn it like some nostalgic badge of honor or something like that. Forgive us, Father, for neglecting the duties of church membership. We pray that you would help us to be faithful as brothers and sisters in this faith family and this body. Help us to be faithful to use our gifts our time and talents and resources to build up this body. I pray for those who aren't a member of a church yet. I pray that they would hear this message in a way that it's meant to be given, not that they must join a church in order for God to like them, but that if they're a professing Christian, that they must join a church. I pray that the gospel would be distinguished from church membership in their minds and hearts. I pray that those who don't know Christ, Father, would come to faith and repentance and come into your church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.